As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike Trout is coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you'll find great baseball talk all week long and all off-season long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic. As always, joined by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. And Doug, it's a big week. It's Thanksgiving, man. And Hey, you know what follows Thanksgiving? It's Black Friday and then Cyber yeah. Monday, right? <laughs> you know why I mentioned that, right? Because the Athletics Black Friday Cyber Monday sale is on right now. As I always say, there's no better sports writing anywhere than in the Athletic. And right now, you can subscribe for $1 a month for the next 12 months. $1. And you know how you would do that? Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show before midnight next Monday night, November 29th, and you can subscribe for the lowest price we offer all year, just $1 a month for new subscribers. Mm. Amazing. Amazing. You won't regret it if you do. But Doug, you know what else I'm thankful for in Thanksgiving week? Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. It's got those three critical ingredients that every great holiday should have. Food, family, sports on TV. <laughs> it's awesome. Mm-hmm. So so where are oh, you yeah. on Thanksgiving's place on the holiday power rankings? Oh, that's that's got to be number one. I mean, I just think uh, all the traditions used to be all of our family, you know, my mom's side particularly would come up to New Jersey and we'd sleep, you know, on the floor, whatever it took to get everybody in the house. 
and uh, it, it's it's been it was a tradition for many years growing up in New Jersey, and so I still try to keep that together. This year, it'll probably be my wife's family who live in New Hampshire, so we'll be doing uh, you know something local with aunts and uncles there. But last year was tough, so trying to like bring it back. But yeah, yeah. the food, are you kidding me? Fall food. And uh, I want to add, you know, we said Black Friday, Cyber Monday. I'm going to add like Weeping Wednesday, you know, for, first of all, we kind of say we need a return policy to return all the stuff we bought. I don't know why I bought that. And uh, we're still eating like turkey leftovers uh, that next week. And after a while, turkey casserole just it, it yeah. starts to go, you know, starts to fall off a little bit in quality. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm fired up. Very excited. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm in favor of all leftovers, by the way. All of them. Bring them on. (laughs) Hey, you know what else we have to be thankful for? Bob Costas is back to visit us in Starkville. Uh, Doug, I feel like what Hawaii is to most people, Starkville seems to be to Bob because he just comes back here all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, We got so many big picture storylines swirling in baseball. Nobody sees the big picture like Bob Costas sees the big picture. So this will be great. Great. Um, Before we get to Bob, though, Doug, I have a question for you about the big baseball awards, which were handed out last week. You know, man, you didn't retire as a player that long ago. But does it feel like a century ago sometimes when you see how different the standards are now for uh, uh, what constitutes a most valuable player compared to like when you played? Oh, yeah. And I think you could see the shift even the latter part of my career. There's always a discussion of just that word value. What what does it mean? And and whether it's the sense of, you know, just the numbers game, which we're certainly more adept at today in terms of the arguments you want to make on, you know, pitchers value and so on. But um, because of also the de-emphasis of certain numbers that were mainstays of my playing day, whether it's wins for pitcher or, or whatever it may be, now you you have different senses of what value is, and it's it's sort of merged well with how talent is evaluated, projected, uh, managed in many ways. I think those those sensibilities have changed a lot. So uh, it makes sense that that the term value has a different component. And I think where it gets challenging is, you know, you have sports writers that have been around a long time through all these generations that are trying to figure out how best to evolve and change and adapt. Uh, you mix that with PEDs and, you know, sort of the the sense of what information we have, the clarity we have around that. <clears throat> Not only has that changed the sense of, or what do these numbers mean? <laughs> You've had to, you, you had to look at things differently. And so now you're starting to, dig even deeper under that rock to say, well, it can't just be this absolute number of home runs because now we're dealing with a generation that went through PEDs, which inflated the numbers. So it makes sense you have to reset this gold standard, which is part of the exciting debate around baseball every single year. And um, and I think it's something that we're going to continue to have. Yeah, let me give you an example. Um, people keep asking me <laughs> if we've ever had a year in which the top three MVP finishers in both leagues, were from non-playoff teams. So I finally took a look at that this morning. And you know what the answer is? No, of course that's never happened. In fact, uh, uh, I went through the whole expansion era. I couldn't even find a year when one league had a top three like that, let alone both leagues. But uh, this was a year in which only two players from playoff teams even got a first-place MVP vote. Uh, one was Brandon Crawford from the Giants. He got four of them. The other was Trey Turner, 
but he's kind of tricky. You know, he's been more of the season with a last place team, the Nationals, than he did on a first place, I'm sorry, on a playoff team, the Dodgers. Uh, but what was interesting to me is that, like, the voters were confused even about those two guys. Uh, Crawford's votes were spread from first place to ninth place. Yep. Trey Turner's votes were spread from first place to 10th place, and two voters didn't even put him on their ballots mm -hmm. at all. So, Doug, what do you think that says about how we define that magic word value or valuable in 2021? It says a couple things. I mean, one is, you know, the, the personal uh, way we attribute value is, is across the board in many different ways. I also see it as we're in kind of transition. I think we're in a period we're trying to figure it out. And you're taking positions of what is number one and what is, you know, what is number 10 in these type of lists. And I think, it, you know, there, there probably could be more value in terms of the professional side to say, all right, maybe we have to have a bigger conversation about this, like really kind of coming to a, a sense of understanding around. It. I'm not saying it has to be universal because we want to have these different voices, these diverse voices. But at the same time, it's like it's a it's a fascinating discussion for fans alike. And just to think about. What is value? Why, why is this guy 10th and this guy's first? You know, what is it about winning that's shifted? I think about winning now, you know, it can be so algorithmic in certain ways. It, you know, it could be so based on resources in other ways. And it could be just great timing, like Alex Anthopoulos and the Braves. I mean, and, and it could be questions around tanking. And so uh, there's a lot of things that go into it that you start to get a little farther away from the individual player <laughs> and to something broader. And, and that is kind of the mark of where we are in the game. We are looking at these teams as single organisms in many ways, that you're in a system, and that takes a little bit away of your independence and your independent, independent value. Yeah. Uh, winning still matters. Uh, you know, I think winning was the tiebreaker in, in why Bryce Harper won. I thought he didn't win, but somehow or other, they were still in the race with a team that wound up winning the World Series in the last week of the season. Um, and that... If you, you had no choice but to connect those dots to Bryce Harper. Um, I, you know, I had a stat in my column last week that showed his second-half OPS was more than 500 points higher than all his teammates combined. And that's amazing. So I, I do think that the fact that his team at least contended got him over the finish line. But it's really confusing now uh, how you value winning. When, you, when it comes time to vote, uh, I think wins above replacement and the, what, and, and the way that interprets value has really reshaped this conversation. And now let me give you another example. Uh, I thought Cy Young voting was very similar, uh, especially in the National League. Um, here's a question. If this had been 20 years ago or 40 years ago or 60 years ago, who would have won the National League Cy Young, Doug? You want a hint? 60. Yeah, I mean, well, how about oh, literally or, you know, a Max Scherzer type or some horse? <laughs> well, was, well it, you, I mean, you can never go wrong with a Max Scherzer type, but how about a guy <laughs> who won 20 and 3? Oh, <laughs> right. yeah, sure. Right, no, like 20 would be the magic number for sure. Right. Julio Arias would have run away <laughs> with the National League Cy Young voting 20 years ago, 40 years ago, whenever. Uh, not anymore. Uh, he was a guy who went 20 and 3 with a sub 3 ERA. Tremendous walk rate, more than a strikeout an inning. He never missed a start. And so, of course, because it's 2021, he finished seventh. 
seventh. And the guy who won was Corbin Burns from the Brewers. Uh, I don't want to be that guy who's saying we got that wrong. I wrote a column and picked him to win because he was so dominant when he pitched. But here's the question. He only threw 167 innings. So that meant he faced almost 200 fewer hitters than the guy who finished second to him, Zach Wheeler. So let me pose this question to you. Uh, I mean, your guy played nine seasons in the big leagues. Give us some input from just your playing experience. How much weight in the future should Cy Young voters place on innings? Because it seems to me, based on this election, we now have no idea how to value innings when it comes time to vote for the Cy Young. Well, I mean, and I'll go another step further. I, I would have voted for Josh Hader. I would have just gotten it out there because <laughs> the bottom line is like, you know, if starting pitchers who go five and a third innings, I mean, five and a third innings, they're depending on 10, 10 other people to close out a game to get the perennial W, the, the, um, the, you know, the value where everything supposedly falls. So if you have 20 wins, now you could look at Arias and say, well, all right, he won, but he had the, you know, it's because he kind of vultured or vampired off of this other situation because they had four closers and all right. So that's what happens. But the, if you take that argument further, then you start looking at guys like, you know, that, that went, you know, Lance Lynn or something, right. Who pitched well, but just only went five innings a game. I mean, I'm not saying that's his fault, but that's the system. Yeah. And so you get farther away from wins in general, which I think diminished Aria, certainly. But it, then it has to diminish everybody. And, and not so much the win total, but the fact is that you went, great, you went five or six quality innings. That's fantastic. But there's still four innings left. You know, so, <laughs> five, you know, so I mean, so that's what I'm saying. Like, so let's just, let's skip over it and just give it to the closer <laughs> that closed out all the games and like was like one of the best player pitchers of, of like all time. I mean, I don't know. So, so that's where I'm at. Like relievers are king right now. They're king. And I think you just start to make the transition that what does it take to start moving over even when it comes to Cy Young and, and get back to looking at, well, you know, it's all about your relief core. And, and that's and Hader, was there anybody better than that guy? No, I mean, I can't think of too many in closing out games. So, it, 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 you know, I don't know if I would have voted for Josh Hader, but Josh Hader did make Corbin Burns possible. I guess that's true. And yeah, you're talking to a guy who proposed to the Baseball Writers Association of America that we create an award for relief pitchers. Did this a few years ago, got shot down. Uh, that The sense of the, of the membership was, hey, you want to vote for a relief pitcher? Just vote for a relief pitcher. Well, oh, Ro- there, Rolade's it, Relief. What happened? The, the it, Fireman Award. Remember that? Back there's, a, like, there's a Trevor Hoffman Award, the Mariano Rivera Award. So they have an award. It's not... It's not what I'm talking about, though. And, you know, my point then, my point now is uh, those pitchers have different jobs than starting pitchers. And now we've reached this point where starting pitchers have different jobs from other starting pitchers. Uh, I want you to think about Corbin Burns versus Zach Wheeler. Okay, now Craig Council gave Corbin Burns the ball every six days and said, Give me six innings, and we're cool. Okay, But then Joe Girardi would hand Zach Wheeler the ball every five days and said, please don't make me come out and get this ball because I don't have to give it to my bullpen. Those two guys had different jobs. 
But when it came time to vote, that wasn't taken into account. Uh, they each got 12 first place votes, but look at the other 18 votes. Uh, Wheeler got five fourth or fifth place votes. Burns got one. That was the that was what basically determined the election. So I, what I'm saying is Corbin Burns wasn't penalized for his lack of innings, while Zach Wheeler got no credit for his extra innings. And it's complicated, so I'm not saying we got that wrong. I'm saying we need to figure it out. Because isn't this a question we're going to face every year for this award now, the way starting pitching is trending in the sport? Yeah, and you don't want to send the message like, you didn't really win. You just were a better second place pick. Like you, you just you don't want to be that. I mean, that's what you're saying, right? You you, you were you weren't quite as fifth placey as <laughs> as wheel as Wheeler. So I mean, come on, you you want to own this thing, and so yeah. I, I, but I I get it. I feel like it's it's a transition. It's a transition. And and look, new data is going to come in uh, every year to rethink how we're going to approach pitching. That's what's going to be really hard because the generations of pitching approach is changing and it's changing quicker than it ever has. I think I always think a generation of baseball players were like five years. It's like, all right, now the steel is in, now the home runs in Now it's like every other year it's like, Oh, wait a minute. Now we're going to do this. Now we're going to have lefties and, and, you know, we're gonna have openers and closers and middlers. And, you know, so I think that is going to be hard to keep up with because I think this is going to change this data and information to assign value is actually changing at the same time. So, and, and I don't think, you know, writers, we don't, you know, there's no control over that. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I, like I said, you can't send the message that you were less fifth placey than the other guy. <laughs> so you won. I mean, I just think that's, that's not exciting. Less fifth placey is a phrase that's never before been uttered that I'm aware of, but it has now. <laughs> hey, you, you know, remember a few years ago when pretty much the same thing happened with Blake Snell and Justin Verlander? Fairlander yeah. pitched many more innings, so yeah. naturally his numbers weren't the same as Blake Snell's. And if you remember, Kate Upton, soon to be Mrs. Verlander, had some issues with that vote, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I think I know how Kate would have voted this year. <laughs> well, well, his name would have been Justin Upton if he took her name, and then there would have been two Justin Uptons. So I think that was the issue. Well, there are, yeah, I don't think that was exactly what she, what she was raving about <laughs> at that particular point in time, if I recall. But here's one of my rules in life now. One thing I've learned, don't mess with Kate Upton. <laughs> File that away. I will do that. I will not mess with Kate Upton. <laughs> Good plan. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
You know, Doug, it's about time we added some wisdom, some eloquence, and some all-important Syracuse alumni presence to this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so who better to do that than a guy who I think has visited us more than any other non-resident of Starkville. It's the one, <laughs> the only, Bob Costas. Bob, thanks for vi- fitting us into your incredibly busy schedule. You know, at the beginning of that introduction, I was looking around to see if Ted Koppel was going to show up. <laughs> Wisdom, Syracuse graduate, some sort of eloquence. I'm thinking, do I fit any of these descriptions? <laughs> you'll have to, you'll have to do with me. And let me, let me ask you something. You know, when you do yes. these, you only see yourself. Maybe it's because I'm technophobic. I don't know how to do this. I just see myself as a little postage stamp over here in the corner in my den, and I see Doug with the various, with the red and with the with the navy blue <laughs> Glanvilles and the six and the and the one. And I see you. And here's I don't know if it's the way it's going to play, but I just want to assure your viewers the portion of this that may be on video. I do not have hepatitis, despite the <laughs> yellow power. Uh, the orange. <laughs> has cast over me. So far as I know, I'm feeling fine. <laughs> you have jaundice, maybe, no yeah, jaundice? Maybe. Little, little jaundice, you know, that brings me because everything is something before you've even posed a question. Stop me if you've heard this. In fact, I know Jason, you have, because on uh, the baseball podcast that we shot, uh, baseball stories that we shot in Studio 42 a few years ago, somehow yeah. this came up and I'm doing the World Series in 95. Cleveland and Atlanta, and Joe Morgan's on my right, and Bob Euchre's on my left. And when Morgan finishes with all of his World Series tales, I turn to Euchre because I know he's got something funny, and I say, Euchre, did you ever play in the World Series? And he says, well, I was with the Cardinals in 64, but when we played the Yankees in the series, I was on the disabled list, as they called it then, instead of the injured list. I was on the disabled list. I said, what was wrong with you? He said, I had hepatitis. This is on the air. I said, how did you get that? He said, the trainer injected me with it. (laughs) Part of the master plan to keep Euchre out of the line in any way. So there's your hepatitis story right there. Get out of here. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know we were going to talk hepatitis, but there's never a bad time to talk hepatitis <laughs> right. in my experience, right? Yes, well. <laughs> in fact, that'd be a good topic for your new HBO show. <laughs> Back on the record. A fantastic new show now on HBO and HBO Max. And You know what, Bob, because this is what we do here. We're going to give you a chance to tell us how this show came about and why you were so drawn to doing this show. Well, you know, I was at HBO from the early 2000s till around 2009. And then when the baseball network came along, where we both exist very happily, they wanted me to join them right from the start. And I had not done any baseball, at least not on the air, since 2000, when NBC had its last broadcast, the ALCS in 2000, and they haven't had baseball ever since. So naturally, I wanted to be part of baseball. Back then, the landscape was different, and HBO still is the gold standard, even with all the other things that have come along, Netflix and others where they do excellent work, HBO is still the gold standard, and then it was the unchallenged gold standard. So I wanted to stay with HBO, but just add the baseball network, because my duties at NBC were not that overwhelming. And the people at HBO said, you got to choose. You can't be on two cable outlets. We have to have a primacy here. So I had to choose between HBO and baseball. It was a very difficult choice. And I went with the baseball. Now, years go by and things change and HBO beckons me back. So it's a somewhat different format. It's a different, not really a different name because the show I had 
back then was on the record with Bob Costas. So we renamed this very cleverly after much thought back on the record with Bob Costas. And it's the same general idea. It's long form interviews, it's commentary, it's panel discussions, it's issue oriented, but we hope also uh, in an entertaining fashion. And there you go. It's what I do. Yeah. I, you know, nobody does the big interview better than you. But the other thing that I really love about this show is it, it gives you a chance to do just one of the many things that you do best, which is reflect on the big picture in sports and in life. And, you know, I was saying before you came on that that's why we're so excited to have you join us on our little show, because mm-hmm. in, in baseball, this is one of those times when so many of the big picture storylines are colliding and who better to run all these big picture storylines past than you. So why don't we start with the labor scene? Um, you know, we're only a week away now from a possible mm-hmm. lockout. Uh, I'm sure you listened to Rob Manfred talk about this, the owners meetings last week. Um, yeah. Here, here was my takeaway. The good news was Rob talking about how his first priority is get a deal done by December 1st. The bad news was, Rob talking about all the advantages of not doing that <laughs> and having a lockout in the middle yeah. of the offseason. Uh, and it sounds like he's bracing us for this. Yeah. You know, the three of us have been through the baseball labor wars before. How are you looking at this one, Bob? I think when the inevitable lockout comes on December 2nd, what Manfred needs to do very simply is address the baseball public and say, We are not happy that it came to this, but certainly this is preferable to having it happen during the season. This gives us plenty of time if we see our mutual interest to work it out. And we'll work out all of the particulars that baseball fans don't care that much about as long as they see baseball when it's time to see baseball. We can't guarantee that that will happen, but this gives us the breathing room to get it done. And our every effort will point toward that. That's all he needs to say. That's what he will say. He should. <laughs> how, how nervous do you think we should be that that isn't how it's going to work out and that this bleeds into the regular season? I think there's a significant chance of that. I'm just reading tea leaves. I don't have any inside information. But I've said this repeatedly without getting bogged down in all the particulars. There's enormous mutual interest here. And they have to realize that while COVID aside, baseball's revenues have never been higher. Um, It is losing ground to football, especially football rules over everything. But apart from football, it's losing ground to all the other things that distract us or take us away or take younger people's interests in a different direction. And baseball has got to address those problems. I know the Players Association looks at some of the issues Uh, where you might be able to address pace of play and length of games and getting the ball in play more and injecting more offense or bringing back more offense into the game. They look at some of those measures as um, leverage points that they have. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll give you this and maybe we'll give you that, but only in return for that. Um, I hope it doesn't go so far down the road where the Players Association and Tony Clark can't see that some of these things are for the good of the game. And the the more the game thrives as an entertainment product, um, as something that works on a business level, then the larger the pie will be. And sometimes it's better to have, I'm making this up, X of 100 
than it is to have two times X of 80 or something. If, if I'm making any sense here, the larger the, <laughs> oh, yeah. the, larger the yeah. pie, you know, sometimes you can win a Pyrrhic victory at the bargaining table, but in the big picture, um, the, the overall revenues are less, the overall popularity of the game is less. Both sides have to see that. They can't win some holy war, as was the case in the past, uh, walk away thinking, well, we won that, when in the big picture, they both lost. Yeah, and, and Bob, I'm curious to get your take on the evolution of how the league and the players communicate to the public. I mean, it's changed certainly with the actual technology, but I remember you know, working with Don Fear on the executive subcommittee, and he's like, look, we're not going to win a media war. I mean, then there was literally media enterprises mm -hmm. only teams. And, and so his strategy was always to talk directly to the players as much as possible and get the message across. What's been your take on how that has evolved in terms of how they work with the press or communicate the messaging to the fans? Yeah, you know, Don Fear and Gene Orser learned that from Marvin Miller, especially back in those days. Uh, the public was solidly on the side of the owners because the take was, oh, these greedy players, I'd play for nothing. I'd play for the minimum. They're the luckiest guys in the world. The minimum salary is more than, than Stan Musial ever made in a season. You know, all those arguments. I think that the public has gotten past that. Generally speaking, there's a greater understanding of the business of baseball than they used to be. But back then, especially, Miller's idea was, I'm going to educate the players as to what their best interests are. And as you know, Doug, it was remarkable when you think of the, of the range of attitudes and backgrounds among players, demographically, politically. You had guys who literally were members of the John Birch Society um, <laughs> right. on the same page, guys who would have marched in Selma with Martin Luther King. You know, um, that, that he held them all together. That was part of his brilliance. And Fira Noiza did the same. There was a little bit of a difference in the early 2000s when the, the next there, there had been that nearly disastrous work stoppage in 94 that blew out the World Series. There hasn't been a work stoppage since that affected any games, but we might have been on the verge of it in 2002 when I think some cooler heads said, wait a second, less than a year after 9-11, the public just isn't going to go for this. They don't care what the particulars are. In the big picture, baseball helped the national mood in the aftermath of 9-11. We can't have a work stoppage of any kind in 2002. And since then, no matter what went on behind the scenes, there has never been a work stoppage. And if you look at it from 10,000 feet, the game's revenues have grown. They've grown exponentially. How do, they, how do they keep that going without being at each other's throats and at the same time address what is the most important issue, which is that what works for baseball competitively through analytics works against baseball as an entertainment product. Well, Bob, I mean, you know, just one quick follow-up on that. I talked to Gene Orza this past week. Uh, oh, did you? Show it. And, and one of the things he said is these, this process is an exercise in authenticity. You know, he's saying that, you know, if you're, you're going to go through a strike and a lockout, it's going to reveal all. Do you think there's any one particular hot-button topic that is that exercise in authenticity that will reveal itself as the big issue you know salary caps have always been a battleground but off the table the economics is there anything you see that sort of stands out well i'm repeating myself the big baseball issue is pace of play and making the game more entertaining re returning it to the kind of balance that it used to have that people find entertaining but i think the big financial issue is 
that the Players Association, with some evidence and justification, is concerned that teams are figuring out, wait a minute, we might be better off going 70 and 92 than 81 and 81 if it helps us get the draft choices, if it helps us uh, try to catch lightning in a bottle, get a good team together uh, before the core of that team is free agency eligible or even arbitration eligible. And so you got a lot of teams that, in the view of the Players Association, are tanking. And you can understand it because it worked for the Cubs. It worked for Lunau and, and the Astros. Uh, other teams have tried to emulate it. Um, some teams have almost no choice. It's not that they're tanking. A team, a team like the Rays have figured out through analytics, they have the fourth lowest payroll in baseball and they won 100 games. And every year they're a contender. So what, what protects, not the high-end guys, because the high-end salaries are going ever higher. So um, Tony Clark's assignment here is how does he protect the largest swath of, of his membership? Not the high end, not the low end, but the largest chunk in the middle. Uh, Bob, we haven't had you on since Theo Epstein visited us, uh, talking about mm -hmm. all these rule changes that they're experimenting with in the minor leagues. And, you know, I don't think there's any doubt that the, the one they're most excited about is the 15-second pitch clock in the league formerly known as the California League. Mm -hmm. uh, also used it in the Arizona Fall League to rave reviews. I'm curious about what you think about that one uh, in what used to be the game with no clock. I'm in favor of it with nobody on base, especially. I think it's problematic with somebody on base, uh, especially if that person's on first base or a base stealer, potential base stealer. But with nobody on base, I'm in favor of it. The three things I definitely favor, uh, a pitch clock in those circumstances, outlawing shifts. Essentially, they're playing the zone defense, other leagues, and there's reasons why baseball is slower to change than other sports. They should be because they have the longest history. The continuity matters. But that doesn't mean that this belief in continuity and generational comparisons should be a suicide pact for baseball. Um, <laughs> so outlawing, outlawing shifts, um, the pitch clock, and very importantly, limiting the number of pitchers on a roster. You know, managers can still be creative, but they should play with a smaller deck cards when it comes to the bullpen. And something else that I heard Tom Verducci mention about a week ago on the baseball network, you know, and he always has the evidence to back it up. Uh, hitters bat collectively about 140 on fastballs with, with elite velocity at the top of the zone. And if the interpretation of the strike zone came down, even the width of a baseball or the width and a half of a baseball, that might actually improve uh, hitters' chances. That one I'm not yeah. sure about, but the first three I'm absolutely sure about. Uh, you know, I'm in agreement with all of that. And, you know, I've written a lot about the pitch clock. One of the things that was really amazing about that pitch clock in the old California League is, if you first off, if you watch the games, the games have rhythm. They have a great tempo to yeah. them that we don't see now in big league baseball. But the other thing that was fascinating was – there were more balls in play. There was more offense. Um, it, I, like Nobody could exactly pinpoint why that was, but it's possible that it, this could be the one change that fixes a lot of other problems. You, you see that too? 
Yeah. You know, I've said this so many times that the next census will show that one in every three Americans will be able to quote it. But I started <laughs> 20 years ago. Baseball is supposed to have a pleasing leisurely pace. It's not mm -hmm. supposed to have a lethargic pace. And you're not supposed to have because of the proliferation of relievers with elite velocity coming out knowing that they're only going to throw one inning and they let the throttle out. The the strikeout rate in baseball overall, you guys know this, is very nearly identical to Nolan Ryan's career strikeout rate. Now, when Nolan Ryan was on the mound or J.R. Richard or Sandy Koufax in the day or Bob Gibson, that was really cool. They might strike out 15 people on the edge of the They're watching a master. But when what used to be the standard of an overpowering master is the norm in the game, stop already. Yeah, no, I was curious just growing up, listening to how you called the games. I mean, how do you view even preparing and the cadences of calling the games and, you know, during the day of, you know, I grew up 80s Phillies fans versus today. I mean, do you do you envision the, the absolute difference between that just in terms of presenting it to an audience? Yeah, it is different. But of course, along with the changes in the game itself have come a lot of changes in how it's presented, not on radio, but on television. So there's a lot more bells and whistles. There are more replay angles. There are more graphics. Uh, there are just more elements to the broadcast, which actually make it somewhat difficult to get into a traditional rhythm. But you know, you, you adjust to it as best you can. But your larger point is correct. When the game has a certain rhythm to it, then even beyond calling the plays, you know when you can slip an anecdote in or make a point between pitches and it seems to fit neatly as opposed, as opposed to having that kind of herky-jerky sort of uh, pace to the game, which isn't just the length of the game, it's how segments of the game play out, uh, where it seems to die for a while, and then it comes briefly back to life for a while. It just doesn't have the flow that it once had. And when I say all this, look, the three of us love baseball. On its worst day, baseball is still my favorite sport. But it's because we love it that we want to see it be its best. Hey, no doubt. And, you know, we just finished a, a postseason that I personally thought was a lot of fun. But... If you look at the ratings, uh, they weren't good. This was the second yeah. lowest rated World Series in history. You're an expert on TV and ratings. What should we make of that? Well, part of it is that baseball has become a regional sport. Uh, as you know, during the summertime, uh, very often local baseball ratings or regional baseball ratings are right at the top. So Nesson isn't concerned about its ratings in, uh, in New England, and the Yankees aren't concerned about yeses ratings, and the Cardinals are doing well in St. Louis, et cetera, et cetera. But the game does not have the, the national profile that it once did. And, you know, I'm not looking at gift horse in the mouth. I did some work for Turner during this past offseason because my friend Jeff Zucker from my NBC days now runs Turner Sports, and Ernie Johnson had an overlap between the start of the NBA and uh, the league championship series. So I was happy to, to come in and help out with that. But consider this fact, half of the World Series pairing always comes out of a cable situation. And Fox puts some of the LCS on FS1. In the 80s and in the 90s, every game was on network television. You know, let's say the World Series is on ABC and Al Michaels is doing the World Series. 
Tony Kubek and I are doing the ALCS. Joe Garagiola and Vince Scully are doing the NLCS. And it's on network television. That's a different platform. So even if you didn't follow those teams closely during the season, they're not your teams. You're watching those games. And, and the excitement of it funnels toward the World Series. To the casual fan now, um, a lot of these teams come out of nowhere, relatively speaking, or they come out of the shadows. Now, I don't know what you do about that because cable t television is a huge part of the overall revenues of baseball. But how do you, I think the same thing is true, by the way, with the NBA. When people talk about LeBron versus Michael, one of the big differences is that there are no little old ladies in Omaha saying, oh, can't play bridge tonight, Mildred. I got to watch LeBron. But they did say that about Michael Jordan, not just because he was great and beautiful to watch, not just because the Bulls won six titles, but because all those games were on NBC, for God's sake. And the promos were on David Letterman and Johnny Carson on the Today Show and ER and Friends and Seinfeld. Now these things are becoming like niches, except to local fans. And that's part of the reason why, why the ratings of the World Series, unless you get a spectacular situation, a unique situation like the Cubs, in 2016. Game seven drew 50 million viewers or something like it. But that was a national story. Neither the Braves nor the Astros were a national story. They're a great baseball story. We all love it. But it's not a casual viewer's delight like the World Series used to be. Yeah. And let me ask you a, a related question. Now, we just had a season in which three teams won 100 games. Mm -hmm. We had a division, NL West, where the Giants won 107 and the Dodgers won 106. We had another division, the AL East, where four teams won 90 games. And the team that won the World Series was none of those teams. <laughs> it was the Braves who won 88. Uh, does that tell us anything about whether it's a good or bad idea about adding more playoff teams? Well, for a long time, it seemed to me that the postseason is a tournament more so than the best teams getting right into the World Series as they used to or a step away when it was just win one of two divisions, win the uh, LCS and and go to the World Series. Uh, there were two or three teams that didn't make the playoffs that won more games than the Braves did. Um, so it's not so much a case of who you play, but when you play them. Uh, the Braves were hot at the right time. I don't know what you do uh, to make up for this inequity. And when I say this, I'm not taking anything away from the Braves, but think of the way this whole thing played out. The Dodgers had to play the wild card game against the Cardinals, which they almost lost. Then they had to play the Giants and go to the ninth inning of the fifth game in order to escape the division series. But because they were a wild card, despite their 106 wins, they had to go to Atlanta. The Braves be beat the Brewers in four. They're at home. It doesn't even end in Milwaukee. They're at home. They're sitting there, even though it's a different era in terms of starting pitching. They get to catch their breath. They get to play two games at home. The Dodgers are spent physically and emotionally from chasing the Giants to the wire, from playing the wild card game, from going to the ninth inning of the fifth game against the Giants. Now they got to go to Atlanta. Both of the first two games go down to the, to the wire. The Braves win them in walk-off fashion. All of a sudden, they're up. Two games to none. I'm not begrudging them any of that. Good for them. But if you play 162 games and then the team that won, let's see, 18 more games than you did is actually at a competitive disadvantage when the LCS starts, it is it is what it is. I'm not sure what you do about it because if you're going to have divisions, then then the Giants and Dodgers are always going to be in the same division. And and you, you've got to make some distinction between wild cards and division winners 
You know, I wish I had an answer to that, but I think that baseball fans just have to accept that when you get into October, you are just throwing the dice. But, but wait, you do have an answer for that. Uh, I think last time you were here, you had a plan for expanding the postseason. Are, are you still on board with that one? I'm trying to remember what it was. This was the Jerry Jerry yeah, Reinsdorf suge- suggested this to you? Yeah, Jerry Reinsdorf had an idea where I guess there would be seven playoff teams in each league, and mm-hmm. the team with the best record would get a bye, which still would not have helped the Dodgers mm-hmm. in this situation. And then you would have uh, three best-out-of-three series uh, with the two um, – division winners that don't have a buy and the best of the wild card teams being the home teams, all two or three games would be played on that team's home field. And then the survivors would make up the four teams that took part in the division series. It's imperfect. It might be better than some of what's been suggested when they expand the playoffs, but there, there's no completely equitable way. There's no way I can think of that. Um, that values the that completely values the 162 game season, which is unique in sports, but at the same time involves more teams and their fan bases um, in the latter part of the season, keeping hope alive for them. There's a, there's a trade off on both ends of that. I wish I was smart enough to figure out a way to mm-hmm. to balance them both perfectly, but I'm not. Yeah, Jer- Jerry has talked up that idea, and it's got a chance to happen. It wouldn't yeah. shock me if that exact idea happens and I don't know, we'll, we'll see how that works out but um, I, I I do worry that we're going to start letting teams with losing records into the postseason which would trouble me no. I'm sure it would trouble yeah, you no. a lot lots of potential issues as you begin to go down that road you know there's another way to do this and, and I may have misstated it I think that Jerry's idea was that all three division winners get a buy right and then you have then you have these four wild cards, and it's only the one wild card survivor, and they, it's a it's a one game knockout. So one plays four, two plays three. The two survivors play on the home field of the higher seed. You get the whole thing over with very quickly, so you don't worry about teams sitting around and and getting rusty or, or what or whatnot. And then the one survivor uh, moves into the division series. But even though that's better than some other suggestions, that still wouldn't have saved the Dodgers in this scenario (laughs) from having to play two play-in before they got to the division series. Yep. So, Bob, I mean, and speaking of the Dodgers, I mean, what do you see in the economics of the Dodgers story that either failed them or is of sort of larger concern? I mean, you mentioned the Rays with their low payroll, the Dodgers, and – and something was missing. Is, is there anything that stands out about how you sort of look at their season? You know, what stands out, Doug, I think, is what we've said. This was a unique season or close to unique in that you had teams that won 107 and 106 games and they went right to the wire. Um, so the Dodgers had to use their pitchers the way they did. Um, and then you get into the postseason and it sort of made sense to use Scherzer in the ninth inning. Uh, but Pitchers aren't geared the way they used to be geared. You know, I I ran into, of all people, Jim Lonborg over the weekend, yeah. 1967 Cy Young Award winner for the Miracle Red Sox, who went to seven games 
with the Cardinals in the World Series. Lonborg started game seven against Bob Gibson on two days rest. He had pitched brilliantly in winning the second game, I guess, on the fifth game. Started on two days rest and Gibson beat him. Gibson was pitching his third game of the series, the fourth and seventh games, both on three days rest. Now you've got guys geared. This is not like, oh, Max Scherzer isn't isn't quite the man that Bob Gibson was. If if Max Scherzer had pitched in the 1960s, he would have taken the ball the same way Colfax and Gibson took the ball. But if this is how you're going to treat your pitching staff, and if this is what they're geared toward, and if guys who win the Cy Young Award are going to pitch 175 innings, then you're going to have some problems come October, and you're going to have these, these bullpen games mixed in. Um, you know, in fairness to, to the Dodgers, uh, there, there had been some injuries and even the Braves, uh, although, you know, uh, Morton got hurt and Soroka had been hurt at midseason. So their their rotation once they got to the World Series wasn't exactly the way they would have lined it up during the course of the season. There are always mitigating circumstances, but uh, but the, you, you just can't you can't get into October anymore with, oh, these are the 30 or so guys that we played the season with. It doesn't work out that that way anymore. And I think that some of that stuff hurts the drama of the game. Um, yeah, this may sound old school, but there was something to be said for Bob Gibson or Sandy Koufax or Tom Seaver taking their cap off, wiping their brow in the eighth or ninth inning. And th- they're not looking at the bullpen, and neither is the manager. This is my guy. This is the best guy I got. Anybody fresh out of the bullpen isn't as good as this guy. And now he's facing Willie Stargell. And it's going through his head and Stargell's head. What did he strike me out with in the second inning? But what did I hit the double on in the fifth inning? That whole cat and mouse thing, it's kind of gone now. Um, Your marquee guys, I know I'm rambling on here as I sometimes do, but you used to pick up the paper. Oh, the starting pitchers. It's it's, it's a battle of aces. Well, only until the fourth inning. You know? So where's, where's the drama in that? Yeah, I, we, we, you know, it's funny. I think about this every postseason. We still have this way of trying to analyze these games, preview these games the way we have for 100 years. Who's pitching tonight? Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, you just said it. They're pitching for four innings. <laughs> and, right. Uh, you know, when you talk about baseball from an entertainment standpoint, um, I, I, I'm, I've probably used this analogy on you before, but what's the appeal? of Gibson against Seaver, Scherzer against Verlander, whatever it might be. It's that, what makes the NBA great? Why do we care about LeBron and Steph? Because they're each going to hold the ball in their hands a hundred times a night. This is the only equivalent in our sport of that. The two great starters emptying the tank. Bob, tell me something that baseball could do to re-incentivize that because it's so important to the sport as an entertainment product. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, we're not just talking about our childhood and you and I are a bit older than Doug. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk relatively recent history. Let's talk Madison Bumgarner. That becomes part of baseball lore within this century, within the last two decades, Kurt Schilling and, and the bloody sock that becomes part of baseball lore. And I would think that if you limited the number of pitchers on the roster, then that would have a ripple effect. You would have to count a bit more on your starter um, to get a higher percentage of the outs. 
Now, I'm not saying that sometimes it isn't kind of cool when um, managers make do with what they have. Remember a few years ago when Craig Council said, I need 27 outs and I don't care how I get them. Yeah, if that's the situation in which you find yourself in a given game, in a given situation, quirky circumstances are appealing to baseball fans. They like to talk about it and, and debate it. But if that's the approach all the damn time, then then I think then I think you got a problem from an entertainment standpoint. Yep. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, and you think about and and by the way, with Craig Council, he he arguably had one of the best rotations yeah, yeah. <laughs> of this era, right? And and still, the thought is, you know, a Burns or someone wins the Cy Young Award, and and they'll average less than six innings a start. Yeah, uh, you know, so I think so that you know that it was twenty eighteen, and he didn't quite yeah. have the rotation that he had. In didn't have those guys. Yeah, yeah and, and that's what he's evolved to. He's gotten those horses, but then the postseason. I mean, what do you see in the shift? of the sort of managerial approach in the postseason versus the regular season. Because one, you have the wild card, the single, sudden death creates a whole another mentality. But there's also a dramatic shift in the algorithms of managing a team in the postseason that I think is very different than what we saw in the 80s and 90s. I mean, it's a, it's almost a different game well, sure uh, when you hit the postseason. Sure it is. And, and by the way, let's say, again, look, this is not get off my lawn stuff. Still love baseball more good, talented young players than at one time than I've ever seen in the game or certainly equal to any other time. But if the Twins and Braves had met in a World Series this year and the seventh game went 10 innings and the final score was one to nothing, but each team used six pitchers, would we talk about it 40 years later or 30 years later as it is now, 30 years later, like we talk about Morris and Smoltz? Like we talk about that game, that's what gave it its epic nature, you know. Um, so you can't blame. Look, you you can't ask anybody to to operate at a competitive disadvantage just because it's best for the game overall. Manager wants to win that game. He wants to win this series. He wants to have a good season. Otherwise, he's out. So, so the the circumstances we're talking about are not going to come about voluntarily. They have to be imposed from above. They have to be imposed by saying that you're going to, I think the easiest way, there have been other ways suggested, the easiest way is just to limit the number of pitchers on a roster, period. The active roster. Maybe you could even change it um, from series to series in the postseason. But you, but you can't just, you can't have 15 pitchers. You just can't. But they do. <laughs> Hey, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, Hall of Fame ballot just announced, and there are a lot of ways we could go with that conversation, but uh, let me ask it this way. Does it feel like our two choices for baseball conversations this winter would come down to A, let's talk about our favorite work stoppages, or B, let's talk about Bonds, Clemens, A-Rod, and PEDs in the Hall of Fame? Well, you know, I said this last year. Um, when Clemens, Bonds, and Schilling, who came closest, fell short. What could happen, and as you know, broadcasters aren't voters, but it's possible that the voters would say, look, David Ortiz is definitely going to get in the Hall of Fame, but maybe we should give him a tiny slap on the wrist for showing up on, on the survey list, and maybe A-Rod deserves a harder slap on the wrist, even if someday we're going to vote for him. So some writers might withhold the vote on the first ballot, and then you could have, just in theory, 
you could have a rogues gallery hall of fame one time on <laughs> Sunday in Cooperstown. Ladies and gentlemen, Barry Bonds, Bonds <laughs> and Dilling. But here it is. It's all yours. And you know what? That would be good TV. That'd be good drama. You wonder what any of these people say, especially Bonds and Schilling. What might they say? You know, Schilling, they're all Hall of Famers. Um, you know, the argument for, for uh, Clemens and Bonds is if, if they started doing anything in the late 1990s, if they had retired instead, they're in the Hall of Fame a long time ago. Bonds, one of the greatest all-around players of all time on his natural merits. And with Schilling, you look at that postseason resume and you look at that career strikeout to walk ratio uh, and his performance in big games. To me, Kurt Schilling should have been in a long time ago. And some of the things he said and tweeted that rub people the wrong way should be irrelevant. You know, here's a question that I've been pondering. I don't have a good answer for it. Um, is, do you think that there's any chance that Alex Rodriguez and David Ortiz somehow help Bonds and Clemens get in because if you look at the bonds clemens vote totals it hasn't changed uh like they have gained a total of eight votes from returning voters over the last four elections Mm -hmm. put together so that says to me everybody who had thought about voting for them has already gotten there and there aren't another 50 votes but is there some way that a rod and big poppy could somehow change that. What do you think? Especially A-Rod. Because if you're going to vote for A-Rod, who served a year's suspension and now acknowledges that he wasn't truthful about the whole thing and also sued baseball on top of it, and now is obviously back in baseball's good graces on both ESPN and Fox, if you're going to vote for A-Rod, then it's pretty hard not to vote for Barry Bonds, I would think. And the only thing that might be a factor is you don't know what percentage of those 50 voters that they need to change their mind said all along, I'm going to let them twist in the wind until the last moment. I'm going to vote for them in the 10th and final year of eligibility on the regular ballot before their case is remanded to to a veterans committee somehow. (laughs) Boy, there are 50 like that. I'm going to take the under. Yeah, I I take the under, too. You know, I feel, hey, if you're going to vote for A-Rod, you got to vote for Manny Ramirez, too, don't you? <laughs> well, uh, Manny, they're Manny, very similar. Manny was not as nearly as great an all-round player as Barry. And he uh, quit, no, that's true, but they both quit on, he quit served on their two, time. Quit on two teams. True. Yeah. A-Rod sued his team. Yeah. <laughs> no question. Well, and, Manny, and Manny had the test. Didn't he? he had the two, like, you know, as if he was trying to get pregnant or whatever he right. was taking. So um, right. you had that problem. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, the PEDs, it's, I, I thought, Jason, you made a great point when you wrote that article about whatever we do, one day there'll be some tell-all book in 20 years to make us reconsider. It's that new information that's always coming. And, and so what do you do with that? You know, th- these are statistically, you know, the greatest players certainly of probably of all time, but certainly of my era, when you talk about Bonds and Clemens and all these great, you know, I played with Schilling, he was a great pitcher. So um, yeah, I, I just, how do you, how do you fix this? You know, how do you, how do you actually get back to this gold standard and, and reconcile that these players are not in the hall uh, because you can't have evidence on everybody that cheated. There's a whole bunch of guys that just simply didn't get caught. It's, it's just 
And some of them may already be in the hall. Right, right. So it's it's a hodgepodge. There's no doubt about it. The way the way I have reconciled this, and some people are absolutists. Our friend Tom Verducci, we all respect him. He says, I don't care if a guy hit 800 home runs, and then there's evidence that only at the end of his career for one season he did something. I'm not voting for him. This is not a right. It's an honor. I'm not saying he should be banned from baseball. I'm saying I'm not voting for him for the Hall of Fame. The distinction mm -hmm. I make is that someone like Bonds or Clemens, they're so far above. There's so much in the elite category, especially Bonds. If he retired at the end of the 1990s, he's in the discussion among the dozen or so greatest all-around players in the history of, game, of the game, no matter what era you're talking about. So I can separate him from, from others uh, who, um, who might have accumulated Hall of Fame numbers, but are not elite Hall of Famers necessarily. Well, and Bonds made that choice. I think that's the, yeah. you know, and I think, you know, I think that's the, because that choice or any of these players, right, that it's not just about them. It's what it did to the game. It's the yeah. fact that I played, it's, it's the fact that I played in an era that you, nobody knows what's, what was authentic. Nobody knows. And it still follows us. And, and that's the, the selfishness of it, uh, of what sort of led to the sort of ripple effect, reverberations of it. Yeah. You know, Doug, that's the word authenticity. That's the word I've always used. Um, I think we get into a really murky area if we say, well, this guy's a better guy because he didn't use it. You, right. you don't know. The late know. Bob Gibson has said, I don't know. If everybody was doing it when I was playing, I'm a competitor. Maybe I would have done it. But so, and criminality is absurd. Who would have wanted mm. Barry Bonds to do a perp walk if it had gone that far with the Balco? <laughs> Ridiculous. We're not talking about criminality. We're not even talking about morality, at least in some sense. We're talking about authenticity. And a lot of what happened in that era in baseball was simply not authentic from a baseball standpoint. Hey, I got good news. If there's a lockout, we can dig in on all of this for months at a time. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. E e either, either that or more archival games. Have you seen the Sandberg game yet? I think you need to see the Sandberg game for the 18. <laughs> okay, Bob, one more thing. I, I want to ask you the kind of question that you ask people all the time when you do interviews. You've done so many remarkable interviews with so many incredible people. Do you have one of those interviews that you would put in the time capsule? Isn't that, isn't that a Bob Costas question? Yeah, no. but it's, it's really hard to get it down to one. From a baseball standpoint, I did a radio show on the old Costas Coast to Coast radio show in the late 80s with Ted Williams for two solid hours. Wow. And it's a different context then. Toward the end of his life, Ted became much more forthcoming with interviewers and talking about his history. And then there were all those end of century documentaries type things. But in 1989, he had not been heard from uh, anywhere in a very, very long time. So this was close to definitive. And for whatever reason, he liked me and he was really, really forthcoming. And we did it at the old Runyon's Sports Bar in New York, which was as close as a, to a sports version of Cheers yeah. as you'd ever find, where you didn't have to say to anybody, I'll meet you at Runyon's. You knew that when you walked into Runyon's, there's about two dozen regulars. And at any time, it could be one o'clock in the morning, five or six of those people would be there. And you'll just settle in and have some kind of sports conversation heavily leaning toward baseball. Mm -hmm. And 
the place had about twice as many as it usually would hold twice capacity there were people like standing in corners and hanging on the banisters of the staircase <laughs> just just to hear ted williams and when he walked in that room what a presence it was as if john wayne had walked into the room and at one point for the end of the interview i said you know you really are in reality the guy that john wayne played in all those movies and you could see for a second you know some measure of humility was at work against his blunt honesty and the honesty won out and he goes yeah i know it <laughs> and it, it was great it was a master class on everything his battles with the boston press how maybe he should have tipped his cap after the last home run but he couldn't quite bring himself to do it um this was before the ken burns baseball movie came out in 1994 where he he had a good interview with ted which sprinkled throughout the documentary this is five years before that a lot of this stuff literally you know writers in boston the dan shaughnessy's and others listened to this thing and then wrote stories about it afterwards not because of anything i did but because for gosh sakes it was ted williams and he was yeah. very open for two hours so if i had to pick the baseball one that's the one no kidding so did, does a recording of this exist that we could even put in the time capsule yeah I know it exists. I don't know if it's on YouTube or, or something like that, but it exists. Yeah, we, we have it. The guy who was the producer of the show saved all the, all the tapes. Wow, it's it's worth looking for. Um, I, I would I would love to hear that. I would love to hear it. And you know what else? I would love to have one of those steaks at Runyon's again. Was it the Sizzler? Is that the name of the dish? I think it was. With an F instead of an S, not a sizzle or a fizzle. <laughs> no, it didn't fizzle, but it did sizzle. <laughs> there, there you have it. Right. Hey, Bob, it's always special having you here, man. Have a fantastic Thanksgiving. All the best with Back on the Record on HBO and HBO Max. And let's do this again soon. You know, whenever I get with you guys, there's no filter on me. You ask me a question, I get like a five or six minute rambling answer. And toward the end, I'm thinking, do you even know where this is going, Bob? Do you even know where the beginning, the middle, and the end is? Good, good luck editing this. <laughs> we have that effect on people. We're proud of it. We are. Yes. <laughs> Evidently, you do on me. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you so, so much. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the nano experience a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient-specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Wow, that was so much fun talking to Bob Costas. But, Doug, you know what isn't always quite that fun? It's this particular segment. (laughs) Which I mean, obviously, it's time for listener trivia. Our wave involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. And even in the offseason, when we have every excuse to take a break from getting these questions wrong, we continue to literally involve you by picking a trivia question from some lucky listener and then inviting that lucky listener to join us right here on this show to attempt to stump us with your question. Uh, we'll tell you how you can join the many happy trivia contestants who have done that in just a few mm-hmm. minutes. Uh, Doug, we broke our shocking two-show winning streak in our last show. So can, can we make it three out of four this week? I, I Like, have we ever gotten three out of four when we were not relying on your old devious cheating <laughs> scheme, which we abandoned for reasons I can no longer remember? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think we have. It wasn't a, a well, did we win even three this whole season? I don't know. It's, it's, it's close. Maybe, yeah. It's, it's single digit. It's single digit, though. I, I, no. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> by what? By what do you mean? One? I, I think we did get three right. Pretty sure. Right. But anyway, I like our chances of getting this question. Believe it or not, uh, comes from a guy we're a big fan of around here. It's Randy Carricker, St. Louis radio legend, uh, host of Carricker and Smallman every weekday morning on 101 ESPN in St. Louis. Randy. Welcome to Starkville. We are so honored to have you visit us here. Jason, Doug, great to be with you guys. I uh, am a frequent visitor to the the podcast, and uh, the highest compliment we can get in radio is when people stay in their cars to listen. I can't tell you how many times, Jason, on Mike and Mike, you would ask the question, and I would stay through the break (laughs) so that I could hear the answer. I'm sorry. I am so sorry. So now you're going to turn the tables. It's about time, right? I was going to ask you what inspired you to to uh, try to bamboozle us with trivia, but I think he just revealed it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, uh, I, well, all of us as baseball fans, we, we we like the numbers and we like the, the history of the game, and we all have one trivia question that we absolutely love, right? <laughs> so you're going to ask us that one. All right, a couple things. First off, we just had Bob Costas on, and there's a rumor, which is spread by Bob Costas, that you used to be an intern for him. Is this true? That is absolutely right. When I started as an intern at KMOX in 1983, uh, Bob was in the office and he was in and out. He was uh, working TV at the time, but I got a chance to actually produce his shows on KMOX. And here's a great thing about Bob. I met him probably in June of 1983, the very first time I had ever met him. I'm 19 years old and he comes back in in September. I hadn't seen him for the entire summer. He says, hey, how you doing, Randy? Isn't that quintessential Bob? He remembers everybody's face and everybody's name. He's just such a great human being. He is a great human being. Absolutely. Hey, let me ask you a quick question about the Cardinals, because it's such an interesting 
moment in time for that team. We got the last year of Yachty coming up. We have the last year of Adam Wainwright. So it's literally the end of that era, but it's the first season coming up for Oliver Marmol, the guy who replaced Mike Schilt as the manager. I think that makes us a really important offseason for the Cardinals. Could you give us a prediction, one prediction of something you think they might do? They have a history, uh, at least a, a, a long past history of stocking up on starting pitching. That was one mistake they made last year. They thought their young starting pitching was good enough to sustain them through some injuries, but Flaherty got hurt. Hudson was already hurt. Uh, Miles Michaelis was hurt. Uh, KK, the, the uh, Korean import, got hurt. The only durable starting pitcher they had last year was Adam Wainwright. And then their kids didn't bail them out like they thought they would. So if I were to predict what the Cardinals will do, I think they'll probably go for one mid-level starting pitcher free agent. I don't think they'll swim in the Scherzer waters or the Robbie Ray waters. But then I would think that they'll probably get two or three guys that are lower level that they can try to resurrect. Maybe a Zach Davies. I think Zach... Zach Davies before last year would be a perfect Cardinal pitching the contact. They have the best defense in baseball. And I think a couple of those guys just to back up what they think they have in the starting rotation would really benefit them. A lot of people here want them to get a shortstop guys. I don't think they're going after a shortstop. I think that's a really good call. I think that's exactly what they will do. Um, but we've stalled long enough. I know you've got a really fun <laughs> trivia question. You've waited a lifetime. To, to hit us with it. So why don't you serve it up now for all of Starkville to hear? All right. Here it is, guys. Last week, as we all know, Bryce Harper won his second MVP award. There have been 11 players that have won three MVPs. There have been 32 players that have 3,000 hits in Major League Baseball. But there's only one player that has three MVPs, 3,000 hits, and has played on three world championship teams. Who is that guy? This is so good, right? So 3,000 hits, right. won three World Series. He's not a pitcher. One... He's not a pitcher. No. I got that one. Okay, good. <laughs> right. 3,000 <laughs> hits, won three World Series, won three MVPs. But luckily, we don't need three answers, Doug. We only need one. Yeah. Okay? So, you know, this kind of reminds me of the questions on the last couple of shows because, once again, this almost can't be a Yankee. The only player who got 3,000 hits for the Yankees was Derek Jeter. We know he didn't win three MVP awards. Amazingly, he didn't win any. So that's a huge hint. And you know what else is a huge hint? Randy is Mr. St. Louis. <laughs> so I think the odds are this is a Cardinal. Um, all right, so Albert Pujols didn't win three World Series in St. Louis. Nope. It isn't him. I think that means we're right back to those Cardinals teams in the 1940s We've been talking about every week <laughs> the questions the previous two shows. So, you know, it just feels like Stan Musial almost has to be the answer. I'm just afraid I'm missing somebody, like some Joe Medwick kind of guy. I don't know. I, I, I know nobody from the Whitey Herzog era ever won three MVPs. Hmm. I can't think of anybody who did it for multiple teams and also passed through St. Louis so my best guess is Stan Musial. What do you think, Doug? Right. All right. So now that now if we, I'm just going outside the box. So if it's not the Cardinals, is there who are there other possibilities? Frank Robinson. How many MVPs did he win? Did only he two? That I only can two. Recall. One in each league, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, exactly right. 
Probably could have won mm. another one, but didn't. Yeah. All right. So I'm just thinking, like, is there any MVPs? But he had to win three MVPs, three world championships. Yeah. Oh, that is tough. And you know, Frank Robinson was a great guess. Great guess. Mm -hmm. But just, I don't think, I don't think there's yeah. enough MVP awards. Right. MVP and then mm, MVPs. And there's only 11, what was it? 11? 11 three-time MVPs. Three uh, MVPs. Three. Oh, that's not a big number. So it's one of these. Right, and they yeah. would, then they would have to win three World Series and get 3,000 hits. Wow. That's an amazing question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I thought in the Cardinals vein, every time it's not the Yankees, I'm thinking Cardinals. Yeah, I um, guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm good with Musial. Are there any other Cardinals we're missing? Gibson, did he win? He didn't He didn't win that many. He didn't get 3,000 hits. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> a little short of that. All right, so are we going to do that? Okay, I th I, th I think we almost have to guess Stan Musial. Yeah, because then we'd Randy, slap ourselves look, if it's... Yeah, Randy, we're always wrong, even when we're sure we got it figured out, but we're going to give it a try. Is there any chance it's Stan Musial? Ding, 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 ding. Yes, it yes. is Stan Musial. Right. He's the guy. And... The other name you mentioned, Jason, and I think the guy who probably was closest was Albert because he got to the 2004 World Series. The Cardinals were swept by Boston, but he's the guy that really has come the closest to joining Stan in that extremely exclusive club. Yeah, what a club. Wow. This is, I mean, what a great, I, I never knew that. That's a tremendous claim to fame. Um, but in other news, Doug, have yes. we really gotten three out of the last four, <laughs> right? We only got three all season. We just established that. And now we've gotten three out of four since the season ended. Done. What? Nope. <laughs> I, I, got, I got an idea. Can we disband this segment forever right now? It's as good as we're ever going to get, isn't it? See, when it counts, when it's the postseason, you see, that's when we shine. That's, a, that's all it counts. Yeah. Hey, we guys, win when it matters. You may or may not have this stat, but it's one of my favorite stats in baseball with Stan. 3,630 hits, 1,815 at home, 1,815 <laughs> on the road. Yes. That's incredible. It's phenomenal. Oh Can't make this stuff up. No. Hey, if, if you listen regularly, you know whether we get the question right or wrong, we still bring in our mayor, Tim McMaster, to distract you from what just happened by playing some fantastic play-by-play -play clip involving this week's answer. So with Stan Musial, so many great choices. Mr. Mayor, let's bring you in here. What are we about to listen to? You made it easy on me for once. We've had so many of these hard ones. <laughs> yeah. Where I had to dig and dig, but I knew Stan Musial was the answer, and I said, oh, this is going to be. I have my choice. Uh, but we're going to go back to 1958, a day when Stan Musial did not start the game but came off the bench to pinch hit for hit number 3,000. Here's the bench. Wow, what a call. <laughs> Randy, who who was that on the mic? That, that was Harry Carey. I thought it was Harry Carey. Oh my gosh, yeah. Harry, wow. God, it was worth it just to have Harry Carey on this show call Stan Musial's 3,000th hit. Yeah, Randy, you did wow. good, man. Thank you, good. gentlemen. Good. It was a pleasure to be with you. All right, it's time to do one of our favorite things around here. 
take a little trip to the dugout. You know, that's where Doug Glanville hangs out and tells his favorite epic baseball stories. Uh, and over this winter, I think we're going to try to make this a regular part of this show. Doug, you up for that? I'm up for it. <laughs> I know you got enough that's stories to fill the whole offseason. That's all you have to do. <laughs> yeah, well, I used to dream of having a T-shirt that said 10 things I figured out in the offseason. And that's, you know, we, we fixed our swing. We, we, we figured it all out. And then we got in the batter's box opening day. <laughs> like, what the heck? What was I doing? All right. Well, we're going to figure out some stuff this offseason. And, you know, Doug, I got to thinking when baseball announced last week that it was going to furnish actual adequate housing to yeah. all minor leaguers. I'm, I'm just guessing your experience as a minor leaguer back in the late, great 1990s was probably a little different from that term adequate housing is there any chance i'm right about that <laughs> yeah well i was a 1990 i was a 1991 draft pick so i was early 90s in this thing in the minors and um yeah we didn't have airbnb and vrbo or verbo whatever they call it uh, so it was a different planet i also didn't happen to be in a, a marketplace that we are in now where you know housing it, it's a dream from a selling standpoint so there's a lot of uh, inflated prices that, that these guys are dealing with. So, yeah, but, you know, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I had my college experience, so it wasn't like a, I was living in a penthouse suite in college. So I did have some understanding that this wasn't going to be luxury. But when I first signed, I signed in July 91, and I was assigned to the Geneva Cubs. So we were upstate New York, and we were still— Wait, I think you we were started- not in Geneva, Switzerland? No, no, thankfully. Yeah, that would <laughs> be a heck of a We're in yeah, the Alps. We're in the Alps. Yeah, I'm thinking of the commute to like Utica, New York. That would have been highly problematic. <laughs> tough bus ride. So, um, yeah, a little tough, a little bumpy. But uh, yeah, so we, you know, we were, you know, I was used to the sense of roughing it a little bit from college. And then I signed in late July and we got sent to, you know, we were in um, on the road at the time in Niagara Falls. And then I came home. And so I think the Bill Bliss Villanova was rooming with Brian Kenny, another Villanova guy. And Bliss, I think, got promoted. <clears throat> so I said, oh, yeah, I'll move in. And Villanova, Penn, we had the Philly thing going on. And this, ho- this room, I think it was $180 a month. We had a mattress on, I had a mattress on the floor. And I was making this crazy baked ch- chicken dish my mom had showed me to kind of save money. And I noticed at night when we went outside, you could literally hear the street light changing. Well, they literally click, click. We were like one main street. You get a click, 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 click. It's like, okay, this is this is kind of creepy. I mean, Hobart College was gone, so nobody was around. And I would go to the ATM machine and look over like shoulders, nobody there. It was just pitch black. So this was like, okay, that was one thing. But the idea that, you know, you had this world of, you know, sleeping on mattresses and trying to, you know, make food for everybody. When I was in Winston-Salem in 92, I was I was the cook. I went to the grocery store, got all the food. Ozzie Timmons, who just got the Brewers uh, hitting coach job, assistant hitting coach. I cooked for him and all these guys. They would bring me food so they could save money. You just had no money. And then the shock was that first paycheck. $327 a month. every two weeks. No, oh, per two weeks. Every two weeks. So yeah, so uh, whatever that is, total six fifty four. That's that was it. That's what I made. That was my paycheck, and um, I was pretty shocked. And I was a bonus baby, so I could survive and had a car and stuff like that. But most of these guys making eight hundred and fifty dollars a month before taxes was just shocking. And and the the idea that oh well, 
hey, you know, we, you know, the previous generation, we went through that. Uh, so what's the big deal? This is a pit stop on the way to the big leagues. But most of these guys don't make it. That's their money. And they're professionals. You know, you're trying to eat and try to be healthy. And the housing has become such a crisis level for these players because the cost. And if you're in a minor league, it's one thing to be a minor leaguer in Geneva, New York and get housing. It's another thing to be in like San Jose. Okay. So, I mean, these are different marketplaces. So it made sense that one of the big issues for these minor leaguers was housing. I mean, they already don't make any money. And even though they bumped it up a lot, they're still making $15,000 a year. They're still not making a ton of money. And they still have families. They still have to live in multiple places, train in the off season, have an apartment here, you know, not because they want to be like, you know, Bill Gates. It's because they have to practically live in all these places. Minor league, get called up, got to break the lease, um, got to rent furniture, you know, whatever. I mean, all these things that went on. And, and I remember renting furniture across the hallway was a teammate of mine. He said, look, I can't afford this whole furniture thing, so I'll just use yours and then I'll pay the rest of the lease. I don't want to like start over, put a deposit on. Well, he never turned it in and then I got collection agencies coming after me, so I had to go after him. And I mean, you know, that's just what you do. So, you know, you have these challenges that um, the minor leagues present. And I think the you have to realize like when I started playing, I remember going to Auburn, New York, and there were literally broken bottles of glass in the outfield of rocks there were you know no insult to the astros there but that's how it was uh we were shower under the stands that were football stands that had no floors they were on dirt or concrete um i mean you were ducking to get in there it was like they just put a shower head in the middle of the floor so i mean these were these were tough and i think what it creates is sure i get the idea that's a motivator to move up but I think it also desensitized big leaguers at times because you look back and you say, well, I went through this. What, what's the problem? And you miss that. It, it sort of gets Major League Baseball off the hook a little because big leaguers are like, well, this is what you have to go through. So, you know, so you're not sympathetic. And then you lose the fact that a lot of these guys don't make it. And I started to see more and more stories of those guys as I got older. A guy like Darren Winston, you remember the pitcher, left-handed pitcher who tragically died, mm-hmm. had like four kids and you know, had a lifetime in the minor leagues, a little big league time, you start to realize like, you know, these are these are their primary jobs. And yeah, they can do other things, but they're pros. So um, so I'm, I'm glad to see the, the, the culture shifting a little bit, the conversation, there's better commitments. And it's the least that Major League Baseball can do because they contracted the minor leagues. So there's theoretically more money or more concentration. That was, what, that was one of the things they said would happen if they contracted. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so yeah, it, it, they can point to saying there's been this percentage increase. But when you look in the window of the rest of the society, or, you know, you're, you're not making a whole lot of money. I mean, I used to, I actually thought about filing for welfare or just to see what would happen as an almost, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I had my bonus, but I made, I, my, my W2 was like $3,000. It was like $3,200. <laughs> it was like, I mean, come on. So, uh, and I worked, I worked in uh, Barnes and Noble in the off season and fine. That's like, you know, it's good for character building and all that, but I did, I worked. And I remember a guy was wearing a university of Pennsylvania hat came in the store and I was wrapping gifts or whatever books. And I saw him, it was an engineering hat. So I was like, Hey, Hey, cool, man. I went to Penn. And he looked at me like, and you work here, you know, now, now granted, <laughs> that's the snobbery of, that might be the snobbery of the Ivy league. So that's not a, that's not a pat on the it back, might be, but, but at the same time, it, it, this, the wheels were turning like you have an engineering degree. Why are you here? Was a, a reasonable conclusion about like why aren't you working as an engineer? So um, you know, so I took a detour in baseball. But that that's the the questions that start to rise. So yeah, it's, it's, it seems noble. Like yeah, like 
you know, Richie Hebner was a, a, a grave digger in the offseason, and I get all that. It's character building. It's humbling. We, we get to play baseball for a career. But these guys are professionals. They are professionals, and they are invested in because of what they can become. And that's to the benefit of not just their own success, but for the team and the organizations that, that say that they're valuable. So it makes sense that we're headed in this direction, and I think we'll continue because you look at other sports like hockey and basketball, they make they make like living wages. They make pretty good money, some six figures out there, and and uh, and not because they're on the roster, because that's that's sort of the standard that these players should be treated and paid accordingly for for their skills. Isn't it incredible that what constitutes a breakthrough on this front is that every minor league player will now have a bed to sleep in. Right. <laughs> I mean, they're sleeping in cars. People are sleeping in cars. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So. so this is a step in the right direction. So we're thankful for that. But you know what else I'm thankful for this Thanksgiving week? That I have a good friend named Doug Glanville who has had such a special baseball life and has so many stories about it that we get to hang out in the dugout. Doug, this is awesome for me. I'm going to spend the whole winter just sitting back, listening to you tell your tales. I can't wait. Look for that. Every edition of Starkville forever. (laughs) Enter the dugout. Yes. (laughs) Okay, that's going to do it for this week's show. We'll be bringing you more of this podcast magic all off-season long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety absolutely free at Apple. Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts. And of course, you can still find us ad-free at The Athletic app. If you like what you hear, we would love it if you would subscribe and give us one of those five-star reviews. Once again, thank you to everyone who has already done that. Now, if you'd like to read our work or any of the incredible writing on our site, there is literally no better time to subscribe to The Athletic than right now. As I mentioned, our Black Friday Cyber Monday sale is going on as we speak. Just $1 a month? $1 for the next 12 months. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And if you're a new subscriber, you can join this fun through next Monday night at midnight for only $1 a month. I promise you'll be happy you made that move. Also, remember that you too can be part of this podcast because every week we invite some lucky listener to submit a trivia question that will enable him or her to join us on this podcast and prove, once again, there's almost no baseball trivia we can't get wrong. To do that, you can email us at starkville at theathletic.com or... There's always the option of firing those questions at us on Twitter. If someone were firing at Doug Glanville, how would that work? Well, to get me out, you probably need to go slider down and away. Um, True. But if you elevate the fastball, I'm going to get you. Yep. Uh, but to reach me, it's at Doug Glanville. Pretty easy. D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Right. That is the ultimate out pitch trivia. <laughs> and me, I am at... J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. That's Jason with a Y-S-T. Remember to hashtag those questions. Hashtag StarkvilleQS. So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Bob Costas for visiting us. Thanks to Randy Carricker for the fun trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us. 
and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up Wednesday on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's Evan Drellich keeping us up to date on the business of baseball. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, everybody. And Doug and I will see you soon on Starkville.